Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest was uh, born in Edenton, Georgia, the eighth and last child of, Winnie, of Willie Lee and Minnie Lou Grant Walker, who were sharecroppers. She went on to work in the civil rights movement, attended Sarah Lawrence College, was an editor at Ms. Magazine, and turned to writing on a daily and continuing basis. Her book, The Color Purple, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1983, was later made into a major movie. She is continuing to write essays, articles, novels. Her current collection is called Anything We Love Can Be Saved, a writer's activism. Please welcome Alice Walker to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for being here. Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking me to come. You know, there have been so many places that, that you have lived and experienced life. I wonder how your idea of home has changed over the years. Well, I think now home is actually where I am. And uh, usually it's on the edge of something. My favorite home um, is in Mendocino, my literal favorite home. And uh, it's on the edge of a valley. Um, but I've moved about a lot. What is it about the edge? I mean, is it the edge, a metaphorical edge of, of work, of an idea, of love, of... Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's just that that's where things are really alive, because you have to balance there. And I've learned how to do that. What has... Uh, has there been a particular teaching that has, has led you in that way, or, or life's experiences? Well, yeah. I mean, I was born on the edge. I mean, I was actually literally born in the South, Uh, as the daughter of tenant farmers, sharecroppers, so that I was actually, as the youngest of eight children, able to see how slavery had actually occurred in this country and and to be a part of what was the result of the Civil War, which was the institution of sharecropping. And when you have gone back to visit your home site, um, what have you found? You mean the one in Georgia? One in Georgia. Well, I found that they have uh, prettied up the place where I was born. It was really, um, actually, where I was actually born is there's nothing. There's just woods, which is wonderful. But there were all these shacks that we had to live in over long periods of time. And so the, the main shack, which fortunately I documented uh, in a, a couple of films, the people who own this have now prettied it up so that you would never imagine that there were ever poor people who lived there. It's very cute. It's, it's uh, been, been made into a, an attraction of some kind. Well, an attraction of some kind, yes. And in fact, they put little signs along the road so that it's very difficult for me to go back to that part of uh, Georgia. Is that, uh, that sort of prettifying of an experience also something that, that took place in the filmmaking of The Color Purple as well? Well, to some extent, but I did know that that's how they do things. Uh, And I think that often it's very hard to believe that people lived lives of such poverty and and desperation. So that no matter how much you try to tell people that, no, it was really like this, they they don't get it unless they've had the experience of at least having seen it. So, you know, there were other good things, though, about the, the film, if that's what you were referring to. I'd like to hear one of your poems from that's reminiscing about that time, and this is something you wrote, wrote, what, perhaps about 20 years ago or so? 
Uh, a more. This is uh, a poem uh, that talks about being uh, in Sunday school in the 50s. And uh, it, it goes, who made you was always the question. The answer was always God. Well, there we stood, three feet high, heads bowed, leaning into bosoms. Now I no longer recall the catechism or brood on the genesis of life, no. I ponder the exchange itself and salvage mostly the leaning. That, in that poem, uh, you say so much about the value of the personal connection of individual love, of nurturance. Well, what I'm talking about, that's from a, a long essay on um, spirituality and really looking at my own Christian upbringing and reconnecting with my pagan self. And what I'm pointing out in that poem is how even though my mother was the one who had done absolutely everything for me, including bringing me into the world, she was a part of the indoctrination because she had been brought up also as a Christian uh, that pr prevented me from even being aware fully that she was the one uh, who connected me to life and not the very white patriarchal Christian God that was drummed into us every Sunday morning. You have uh, uh, descriptions of different depictions of God, of, of how you imagine God to be and, and how others did. What were some of those visions or imaginations? Well, I think almost the same for everyone. I bet people in this very audience, uh, it's a very, you know, if, if you're told that Jesus Christ, you know, a white man, is the Son of God, then you automatically think that his father looks just like him, except that he's older. So this is, you know, just really sneaky indoctrination so that you, you gradually begin to feel that this God, this person, is very much like the people around you. And in my case, the people around me who look like Jesus were just really fascists. And so, I mean, so much so that you could not, as a black person, disagree with one of them publicly without risking being killed. So it was a very major contradiction. And I think in the psyche of black people then, what saved us to the extent that we were saved was the love of each other, the community, and our ability to sing our way out of this incredibly complicated uh, situation. And when you, when you grew up, uh, what color were your, your ministers? Oh, they were all black. I mean, very, and, very. And, and on the wall, black. and on the wall, you had pictures. Oh, all white, all white Jesuses. And did the ministers ever explain that, or did it ever come up as a question? Oh, of course not. No, I mean, they didn't even deal with the fact that they were half white. You know, I mean, that would have been helpful because generally speaking, the ministers were. And that is why they were ministers because they had been given the privilege of more education and more nurturing than people who were not mixed. So there we were with them as the intermediary. And so uh, I think they felt it was quite logical because they felt that they were actually closer to God, but really they were just closer biologically to the white men who had fathered them. There was uh, something that, that you had said once, uh, our task is to enhance our tools with what strength we have developed through our talents, but that's a hell of a job. Black people aren't used to being loved, and our defense is to keep escaping affection. Uh, you know, people are always pulling out these quotes, and then I have to try to remember what I said. Um, well, we can talk about the idea. No, no, yeah. Uh, I think it's just that when you have been oppressed for a very long time, and you see this with women, I mean, and, and you know, people, that it is very difficult to believe that you're lovable, 
and that because if you haven't been loved, I mean, who's to say? You know, you think, well, gee, if nobody is treating me with love, it must mean I'm not lovable. And this is such a hard thing. It, it means actually that that people react to a clear picture of themselves often with great fear, because they think if the picture is really clear, some faults will show, and of course they will, because we all have faults. Uh, and that is why the criticism of clear art is often so incredibly vicious, because it is just too threatening. But this comes out of this feeling that if people see all of my defects, they will not love me. How do you overcome that for yourself? Well, I think I was very fortunate um, because I felt very loved as a child and mostly by grandparents. This is, this is the major function of grandparents. They are to teach the grandchildren that they are absolutely lovable no matter how faulty. And then the other way is for the child to see in the grandparents as they fade into, you know, some debility and, you know, weakness and, you know, their vision gets blurred and all of that. They begin to see that these grandparents are defective, quote. And they realize that no matter how defective grandpa may be, no matter how he forgets and leaves his teeth out there on the porch, you know, whatever, you adore him. You adore grandpa, you adore grandma. And so that's what you're learning. And, and that's one of the reasons it's really important for children to be in a context of a family or a community where they can actually see both ends. They can see you know, what, what happens when you sort of totter off into the sunset. And then they can also see themselves loved by these wonderful you know, tottering people. Your, uh, your daughter now is, is how old? She's 27. Uh, are there grandchildren? <sighs> well, no. <laughs> I would love it. I would love it, and I constantly remind her that I would love it. But, uh, but, but you know, the way the universe seems to work is that when you acknowledge that you love something, then it just comes into your life. It just appears. So I, I'm just, you know, I have babies. I mean, there are babies in my life. And um, so, and there will always be, I'm sure. You mentioned your, um, your films a few, a few minutes ago. You've done, uh, you've worked on films about a female genital mutilation, which is, the more you read about it, the more you realize what a, a terribly ugly and oppressive and, and terrible practice that is. Do you find that, that films are more effective for you as a medium to get your, your message across than, than books? Well, it depends. What I always have to realize is that so many of the people I want to reach can't read, don't read, won't read, or afraid to read, live in countries where they, you know, are just used to film, not to books. So it has taken, you know, a while for me to really grasp that that's what I needed to do, and then that's what I started to do. So it works. You know, I, when I went to Africa to work on the issue of female genital mutilation, I ran into women in every village Often they would be dressed completely in purple. And they knew about me because of the film, not because they'd ever even heard of the book. I mean, they said, what, a book? But they knew about the film, and they connected with me, and they really trusted me. And so I was able to actually do a lot of work because of film and not because of, of what I had written you know, as a book. There's a, a scene in one of your essays or a description of... Uh, of a group of women gathered around you or around the camera, and they hold up a sign that says, resistance is joy. Well, they are 
taking that line from Possessing the Secret of Joy, at the end of that book, the heroine has murdered the woman who mutilated her. And she is being uh, shot at the end by uh, the government. And on the way to being executed, the women who line her, her path are holding up this banner that says resistance, which means resistance to this kind of oppression, um, is the secret of joy. And at the same time, they're also holding up their children, their little girls, and they're showing her as she's going to be executed that this will not happen to these children. And so that is her last vision as she is uh, executed. You've always written um, books that are as much about political issues as there are individual issues, and that you illuminate the, uh, illuminate the political through the individual experience. And this seems to me a much more powerful way of, of telling a story, of getting a point of view across, than just a genuine political tract. There's a letter that you wrote to, uh, to Bill Clinton last, last year, saying that you'd hope to, to meet him and so forth. But throughout, you make a distinction between what he seems to be doing in his office and who he seems to be as an individual. And you also tie that back to an experience you had with John Kennedy. Well, that experience was that when I was a student, my first, I was, yes, I was, I've always been political. When I was 18, I picketed the White House for the first time. And it was about a hands-off Cuba rally. And uh, it was very cold. In fact, I have never demonstrated in Washington, D.C. when the weather was good. <laughs> never. But anyhow, so there we were trudging back and forth in the snow. It was really cold and looking at the White House and thinking, you know, it looks like it's made of cardboard and, you know, is anybody really in there and is this really worth it? I mean, this is what you always feel. And then someone from Kennedy's office sent coffee to us. Now, in years, you know, since, I think, well, probably a secretary, you know, who was on our side. But it really made a difference in the way I thought about him and the way I thought about the White House. And so when he was assassinated, we were all very sad at my school but I was sad because this was someone I felt who might have seen that we were out there really cold and even though he opposed what we were doing, had sent this coffee. And I was saying to Clinton that it really is compassion that you need now instead of punishment in, in, in the sense that his, um, his punishment of Cuba, which follows this long line of punishing behavior uh, by the government, uh, is just really wrong. Uh, partly because um, it follows a pattern of punishment which doesn't work, but also because of the children involved. All of these children in Cuba that are being starved, literally starved, because essentially this government does not like Fidel Castro. It's really immoral. And your sympathy um, almost uh, is, is with children, it seems, everywhere in the world. This, this seems to be your, your hope, your idea of the seed of what can possibly change. Well, I think that really is, is what we should all be feeling. I mean, the idea that your child is just yours is truly obsolete. Uh, because what, that, what will happen is that, say you are able to give your child everything, you know, that, that you, he or she could possibly want, you know, three cars and, you know, five refrigerators. But actually, in a world that's becoming more and more poor, this really means just that your child will never be able to travel anywhere else in the world, you know, happily. I mean, they may be able to go there with guards. They may be able to go there, you know, uh, as tourists of a, of a sort. But never will they be able to actually connect with people in a real human way. 
because the feeling from the other side is just that this is somebody who is eating my life. You know, this is somebody from the West. Look how fat they are. You know, look at, what all, look at all this stuff they come here with. And we have nothing. So there's no possibility of real uh, joining, real meeting, real love. And so eventually the world then will just become these people who, who seem to have all of the stuff and unfortunately none of the spirit and the rest of the world, which will just be really, really poor. Well, that's even happening within this country itself. No, that's true. Some of your recent writing is, seems to be very, very much influenced by both uh, Jungian ideas and, and Buddhism as well. I mean, this is clearly um, branching out from, from your upbringing in the, in the, in the South. What are, uh, what are some of the Buddhist ideals that, that inform your work and your, your way of life? Well, amazingly, I just started studying Tibetan Buddhism about two years ago. Uh, when I was really in need of something that was really uh, something that would work. I mean, I've always meditated, I mean, for about 25 years. But I just started really studying it. And what I find, and what they actually say, is that Buddhism actually reconnects you to your own essential nature. And that's what I found. I mean, I find that when I read something in Buddhism, for instance, like they, they say, um, if you find that you fear something, turn toward it rather than running away. And in fact, run toward it. This is something I have just instinctively done my whole life because I really don't like to be afraid. And that's because, um, I mean, I don't like to be afraid, but one of the, the ways in which I exercised this was by going to live in Mississippi at a time when it was just really unthinkable. Um, for and, and you went there also as an interracial couple. Well. well, no, I went there first by myself, and then I met this uh, wonderful warrior person that I then married, partly because he was so wonderful, but also because interracial marriage was illegal. And this seemed to me very insulting. It, it seemed to me that if you have a country, if, you know, in fact, you are a citizen of a country, this means, it has to mean that you can live anywhere in it without people automatically, you know, wanting to kill you. I mean, really. So I ran toward Mississippi, and we lived there for seven years until I was no longer afraid. What was the nature of, of some of the harassment you experienced? Well, you know, just people being killed, you know, people that you knew and people being beaten up. And, you know, my, my former husband's car had a bullet hole right through the front of it. Um, just, you know, day-to-day -day racism and, and uh, a real sort of fascist Nazi state uh, violence against people of color. Um, when you tell your daughter these stories, does she seem incredulous that it's, that it's out of another time? No, because she, you know, she's a black woman, and so she knows that racism is still here. I mean, it's just changed some of its forms, and not even many of its forms. I mean, Rodney King is so reminiscent of what was do done to black people in Mississippi routinely, you know, and during my childhood in Georgia, because you know, you couldn't really um, talk back. You couldn't really express your being. I was talking to someone the other day about my first awareness of, of things being out of kilter. And I think it was when I noticed that my parents, whenever white people arrived in our yard, they just turned to ice. They, they were just not at all the people I knew. So that as a little child, I would just walk around them and looking up at them wondering what had happened to them. And it was because the person who had come, you know, owned the land, 
owned the house, had everything um, to say about what went on you know, in the house, on the land, and they had no rights. This is why they turned to ICE. And this was very chilling, needless to say, to uh, a child. You, uh, you tell a story about Zora Neale Hurston uh, being stopped for a traffic running a, running a red light. Well, this is actually, you know, it's one of those things that she collected, but, you know, it, it, I'm sure everybody said it. But the point is that when, uh, I'll just give it to her, though, uh, Zora was stopped for running a red light in Florida, which was just as, you know, racist as Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama. And uh, she explained to the police officer, she said, uh, well, I saw all the white people going on green, so I thought red must be for me. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> the uh, uh, it gives it gives a whole new uh, light, I suppose, to the Jim Crow idea. But uh, no, I, I've I've talked with people on the show. For, there was a, a singer in the, in the group, The Persuasions, that was on, and, and they were on on uh, Martin Luther King's birthday a couple of years ago. And I uh, I asked him how he explained um, what went on in the '60s and 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 prior to that uh, to his to his daughter. And he said that uh, his daughter didn't believe him. She, she thought he was just like making it up that it didn't really happen. Because she, she grew up in a world that, that though there were still the elements there, and though she was a black woman, she didn't experience the beatings, the, the police batons on the, on the kneecaps. So I was curious. And she obviously has never seen television, you know, and, and, and Rodney King and, and the, the constancy. This, this was before Rodney King when I asked him this question. So. Because, because the point is, you know, it's, it's not as if we're talking about something that's, you know, historical. I mean, we did change the laws, but as we see, laws can be rechanged. They can be rewritten. Uh, so I would fear for her because you have to know, you have to make yourself aware of what has happened to you and to your people and to the world and to the earth. You know, one of the sort of clubs that I would say that, that uh, exists still is uh, the, the after effect of Proposition 13, at least here in California, and, and probably been emulated in other states as well, uh, which is sucking the schools dry of money. Uh, Robert Hass, the poet laureate, ver, uh, very clearly saw the connection between poetry and the politics of education, and that the way that the world will change and work is by people learning to read. And if you cut poetry, if you cut reading, if you cut education, if you cut teachers, you will end up with a segregated society. People who can afford education and reading will do that. Those who can't are, are sent to schools where there are huge classes, where nothing gets taught or learned, and you end up with a literate and an illiterate society, which creates that the condition you were bemoaning just minutes ago. Well, and the, actually what is happening there is the creation of a pool of cheap labor. Because apparently our kind of democracy demands this huge, uh, it's virtually a slave force, you know. And people should actually really think about that. Because that is, is the result of making people impoverished. You know, it's the result of having all of these people who don't know how to do anything, you know, but, but work for you. Uh, so, it's a very real danger. I'd like to hear another one of your poems. This one is called Expect Nothing. What were the circumstances of writing this? Now, you, have no, you can't expect me to know the answer to that, but I... Well, I, okay. I, I, I think what I, I'm, I was... Actually, I read this to the graduating class at Spelman 
for their commencement a few years ago. And I was explaining to them that there are times in your life when you mustn't have expectations. I mean, you should just be open to what will happen, but not to, to sort of pin all of your hopes on something that you absolutely expect. So, expect nothing, live frugally on surprise, become a stranger to need of pity, or if compassion be freely given out, take only enough, stop short of the urge to plead, then purge away the need. Wish for nothing larger than your own small heart, or greater than a star. Tame wild disappointment with caress unmoved and cold. Make of it a parka for your soul. Discover the reason why so tiny human giant exists at all, so scared and unwise. But expect nothing. Live frugally on surprise. Alice Walker reading one of her poems, Expect Nothing. I want to go back for a second to that uh, letter that uh, you wrote to Bill Clinton uh, opposing what he was doing with, with Cuba. Uh, did you get a response? I did. Yeah. He wrote back very uh, right away, very long letter. Uh, the first paragraph was, you know, very uh, decent. And then he just <laughs> launched into this old Cold War jargon. And what was uh, very upsetting is that if you read my letter, I'm talking about, you know, how you really cannot morally justify starving a man's children if you hate the man, you know, if you hate the father. You really can't justify starving the children to death because of that. <clears throat> so I'm talking about the children of Cuba, you know, who, who literally are malnourished now for the first time in 37 years. Um, and, you know, it's all about children and, and infants and, you know, uh, mothers and, and how women now can't have mammograms, proper mammograms, because the embargo means that they can't get the kind of film they need to take the pictures, so the women are dying more of cancer. So all of these things. And so, you know, children, children, children. And then I get this letter back from him, and he does not mention the word children or child once. Not once. Um, even though I managed to quote Hillary's book on children. Which you even said you went out and bought in your letter. I went out and bought it and I read it. Uh, and I was trying to remind him that when you give birth to a child, it is true. It is, it, it is as if you, are, are ha you have your heart walking around outside your body, very vulnerable. But I feel that way about Cuba. I mean, the whole country. That's how I feel about it. I mean, this is the country that I was uh, politically active in, in defending from the time I was a teenager. You know, I'm not abandoning it now. You know, I don't care what Fidel has done or whatever they've done. I am committed to the welfare of the people and the children. Um, and so that is what I wanted him to know, that there are people, and I'm not by myself, no matter what the government decides, we will not be dissuaded from working for the betterment and the health of those people. Because actually their way of being in the world is to be very generous and helpful to other people. You take politics, uh, again, and, and you invert the structure. Uh, and this, is, this seems to me something that must baffle 
politicians who work in the traditional structure of power down, and you want to acknowledge uh, the people, the citizens, the children, the individuals, rather than the, the political structure itself. But why wouldn't you do that, since a political structure is supposed to be for the people? You know, someone was telling me yesterday, I think, that Madeleine Albright had been shown pictures of the killed children in Iraq and asked, and there, you know, there are thousands, hundreds and thousands of children, I mean, many of them under the age of five, who were killed by that bombing. And people don't seem to even connect to that. But so they asked her whether she thought it was all worth it. And she said, yes, apparently. I still can't believe she said yes. But nothing is worth the bombing of children, nothing. You, uh, you say that our hearts are made to be broken and that we wear them on the, on the outside when there are children near us. Um, how, would you, how would you hope that people would feel that vulnerability and, and change their, uh, their political view? Well, what I was talking about, about hearts, you know, the, the, you have hearts partly to be broken. And one way to uh, kind of grow is to just be open to that. You know, just say, well, you know, I have a heart. I'm glad I have it. It's going to be broken and then go ahead and do what your heart tells you to do, knowing that it's going to hurt, often. But that's, that's the only way it gets bigger, because it, as long as you're afraid, it's very tight, and it just gets smaller. But just, you know, just open it. There was a time when you had uh, Lyme disease and you turned away from your uh, embrasure of, of, of nature, and you wanted to stay away from it because of of the fear that of, of what that nature had bit back, I think you said. Do um, you now go out and practice uh, your sort of pagan rituals in the woods again? <laughs> My pagan rituals are very, you know, it's just lying on the earth basically and thinking. <clears throat> in fact, two days ago I was lying on the earth, looking in a in a eucalyptus grove, and you know, just looking at the at the leaves and the light, and feeling that this is really all the cathedral I need. You know, so yes, I mean, I, I was afraid because uh, Lyme disease is so debilitating. You feel so weak. But over time, I realized that I actually love nature so much that I don't care, you know. I mean, I'll just risk it. There's a photograph in your, in your uh, new book here that, that is of a, a picture of a woman standing next to a tree covered with, with leaves. Uh, do you remember? Oh, yes. Well, this is, this is a woman from the rainforest in West Africa, and she is dressed, that's her dress you're talking about. Her dress is made of leaves. And, you know, we were told that people who wore dresses made of leaves were these awful heathen pagan people who didn't know that they needed to, you know, wear blue jeans. But in fact, where she lives, blue jeans would be really hot, and she would have to go through a lot of changes to get them. Uh, and the way that she is now, living in the rainforest, in her dress made of leaves, in her house made of leaves, I mean, her house is made of leaves, too. She is really comfortable. She is very happy. She's very serene. Uh, and I dread the day when the missionary will knock on her tree and say, you know, become like us. Because that is basically the message of the missionary become like us, accept our God, you know, some God that she has never even thought of, nor need she, nor need she. I mean, she has, you know, splendor. We all have splendor, you know? I mean, those of us who haven't had it completely stomped out of us. So she's fine. She doesn't really need, uh, you know, anybody to give her a God that she can't think of herself. Speaking of your, your own splendor, uh... What was the story? Of, uh, how did you decide to let your, your dreadlocks come out? 
Well, because they're natural, and I just really prefer the natural. I love what is natural. I think the beauty of, of anything is in its naturalness. I mean, it doesn't really matter what it looks like. It's that it is its own thing. That's what's beautiful, because it's the truth. And that's why Keats's line, truth is beauty, beauty is truth, that's all you need to know, that's it. There's a, a, a picture also in this book of, of, uh, that, that you say you keep next to your, your desk, your writing desk, and it's a picture of a man hugging a tree. Yes, that's from the Chipko movement in India, where the, the, the people, mostly women actually, this man, I don't know, they, they didn't take a picture of a woman hugging a tree, but um, they started a movement to save what is left of their forests, and they did it by each one just hugging a tree and not letting go, no matter who came toward them with a chainsaw. And this is actually what people are doing, you know, in many places of the world. In fact, Chico Mendez, that was how they tried to save the forest uh, in, in the rainforest there uh, in South America, by, by holding the tree. I mean, it, and it's coming to that, it has come to that, that in order to save something, you literally have to put your arms around it and make the decision to hold on to it. And that could be a person, a child, uh, a parent, uh, and certainly not a government. A government won't come and embrace you. They'll come and carry you away sometimes, right? Well, that's always the risk. That is the risk. The book is called Anything We Love Can Be Saved, A Writer's Activism. It's a collection of essays and poems by Alice Walker. Thank you very much for being a guest here on West Coast Live. Thank you so much. It's been great. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.